reading this evening is going to be taken from Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and I've got the steward who's going to read that for us, please. Reading with you all from Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them, while the sun or the lights or the moon or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain. In the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble, and the strong men shall bow themselves, and the grinders cease because they are few and those that look out of the windows be darkened. And the doors shall be shut in the streets when the sound of the grinding is low. And he shall rise up at the voice of the bird, and all the daughters of music shall be brought low. Also, when they shall be afraid of that which is high, and fears shall be in the way, and the almond tree shall flourish, and the grasshopper shall be a burden, and desire shall fail. Because man goeth to his long home, and the mourners go about the streets. Or ever the silver cord be loosed, or the golden bowl be broken, or the pitcher be broken at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. Then shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher. All is vanity. And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads, and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And further, by these my son be admonished. Of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. Thanks, Brother Stuart. And so to address us on our final class on Ecclesiastes, Brother Neville. Well, thank you, Brother Chairman, and good evening, my dearly beloved brothers and sisters, our dear young people. Well, we come this evening, brothers and sisters and young people, to the conclusion of the whole matter, don't we, as we've read in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Solomon has pursued this quest, as you're aware, for the greatest good that he might find out that elusive commodity that he must find to bring himself ultimate satisfaction in this life. And as he told us in The early verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 1, this experiment that he conducted was to be very deep and very wide-ranging. 
And so it was, because as we've found, he pursued this quest by personal experience, by doing things himself in life. He pursued it by general observation, by observing, by watching things that other people did in life. He pursued it by mature reflection, where he marshals all the experiences of life together, draws conclusions, crystallizes the great answers that make this book the masterful exposition that it is on the meaning of life. And you'll recall, here's our structure once again, an introduction, a conclusion, and in between, three great experiments on life. And as we said, these are the experiments of what, of what Solomon did by personal experience, what Solomon saw by general observation, and what Solomon concluded or deduced by his mature reflection. And just looking at that, very briefly, you can see one very salient point. You know, we discussed in our early classes that Solomon had great difficulty arriving at conclusions, and the harder he tried, the, the bigger he found the problem was, and that it just wasn't a simple exercise to solve the great question of life that he was trying to answer. And so what you find looking at that overhead there is that the, the experiment on personal experience took two chapters. The experiment on general observation took four chapters. And the experiment on mature reflection took six chapters before the quest is finally concluded. It got more and more difficult and the quest got larger and larger as life continued and Solomon wrestled with the anomalies that he found in life and the difficulties he had himself in trying to answer the, the questions which have perplexed all of mankind. Tonight we come, of course, to the conclusion of the last experiment. This is the, the quest pursued by mature reflection. This is the, the last and greatest experiment, I suppose you could say, of all that Solomon conducted in this book. Tonight we're going to consider chapters 11 and 12 of the book of Ecclesiastes, the last phase of the last experiment. But remember, for the most part, at least, chapters 11 and 12, as you can see here, are not a new section. They're merely a conclusion of the previous section. Here's this section, of course, runs from all the way from chapter 7 to chapter 12 and verse 7. What we're going to look at is, this, is the verdict, if you like, as we've called it, the conclusion of the last experiment. And you remember the point we made in our last class, that the first half dozen verses of chapter 11 relate to this section here. Wisdom amidst uncertainty is based on the fact in section 1 here that life is uncertain. Wisdom before judgment is based on the fact that judgment is coming. Section 2. Wisdom in youth is based upon the fact that we all die in section 3. And so what we have here is, in fact, the section on wisdom and folly rolls all the way through here. I've only divided it by calling this the verdict to illustrate the fact, to show that this is a conclusion not just of this section, but of the whole section, the whole greater experiment that Solomon has undergone in this last half of the book of Ecclesiastes. Well then, look, let's look at chapter 11. I'll leave that up just for a moment for you. I've got copies of the overheads here once again, so please don't copy them down. Just perhaps take a note of the title or so. Ecclesiastes chapter 11 and verse 1. Look, cast thy bread, he says, upon the waters, for thou shalt find it after many days. Cast thy bread, he says. Bread, in the first instance, in this verse, is a reference to grain. The farmer, you see, would cast forth seed. 
depriving his family of some of their substance that he might gain even more back in the subsequent harvest. That's the point that the verse is illustrating. The reference here to casting bread upon the water appears to relate to the sowing of seed in the overflowing waters of the Nile. When the Nile overflowed and inundated the land, the seed would be cast upon that water and would germinate very, very quickly in the alluvial soil that the river brought down from the headwaters. And the seed would therefore germinate and grow very, very quickly after that. And that appears to be literally what is being spoken of here when the seed is cast upon water. But what this is an exhortation to is to commit your resources in faith. It's something which you're going to make a sacrifice here. You're going to take bread off the table and you're going to cast it into the water to get more bread back in subsequent times. Commit your resources in faith and wait upon the blessing of God. That's what he's saying in verse 1. In fact, you know, the word cast here means to send forth like a ship. To send your seed, as it were, forth like a ship. And in Solomon's own life, he did that very thing. Because in 1 Kings 10 and verse 22, it tells us that he actually built ships. And he sent those ships forth to Tarshish that they might return unto him after many days. And when you read the king's record in chapter 10 of 1 Kings, you find that those ships sailed from Elat once every three years to eastern Tarshish, and they brought back with them after three years gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks, the record tells us. So in a very literal sense, Solomon did just that and was very blessed in his venture. But of course, every venture has some risk of failure. Any venture we do, any casting we do, well, not all the seed would germinate, would it? Even though it was likely to, not all the seed would germinate. And to a, great or, a greater or lesser extent, every venture has risk, which, of course, is why the godly man sows in faith. And for a farmer, with perhaps very limited resources, the sacrifice undertaken to, to participate in that venture might be considerable. Which is why the psalmist in Psalm 126 and verse 6 says this. Psalm 126 verse 6. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Psalm 126 verse 6. You see, an exhortation to enterprise. An exhortation to initiative. An exhortation to faith. The truth is all about the sacrifice now, today, for the gain of tomorrow, isn't it? The sacrifice of today for the gain of tomorrow, that is a fundamental basis of the life of faith. But, you know, in a very general sense, this verse also has an application, I suppose you'd say, at the very human level. Because a generous spirit will also cast its bread widely and be blessed for it. Not, not perhaps hoping to get something in return, not necessarily even making a great sacrifice. But Scripture tells us that a generous spirit that does cast its seed widely will be blessed. Proverbs 11, verse 24. Think of this, Proverbs eleven twenty-four. There is that scattereth and yet increaseth. And there is that withholdeth more than his meat, but it tendeth to poverty. The liberal soul shall be made fat, and he that watereth shall be watered also himself. And the fact that we're generous, if we are, is a great blessing to us, because our generosity is very, very well placed. God adds blessing to generosity. And what's more, 
And what's more, from a very human point of view, it is a good thing to be generous because you never know when you'll need somebody to be generous for you, which is what he says in verse 2. Give a portion to seven and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. A portion to seven and to eight, he says. This, the technical term for, the, for this phrase or phrases like this is that they are ascending alliterations. And they use a number of times in Scripture. Amos talks about for three transgressions and for four. You'll read about for five, for, for five and for six, for six and for seven. Very simply put, what this means is give enough and more than enough. Give as you are able. Give abundantly as you are able, as liberally as you are spiritually entitled to do so. And why? Well, he says in verse 2, the end of verse 2 here, he says, Because thou knowest not what evil shall be upon the earth. Life's uncertain. You just don't know, you see. Someday you may be in need yourself. You might sow in faith, but things might not entirely go your way. You might have entirely miscalculated the risks, and the harvest just might not be what you thought it was going to be. And all of a sudden, you need a generous spirit to come and visit you. But you know the interesting point about this verse, in verse 2 here, and this is interesting, think of this. The reason given here in this verse for being generous is the very reason a covetous man would use for not being generous, isn't it? What's the reason given for being generous? Because you don't know what tomorrow might bring. That's the very reason a covetous man would say he's got to withhold something. He's got to keep it back, you see? And so the very argument that the wise man uses for liberality, the covetous man uses against liberality. Not, of course, that you simply give generously hoping to receive something. Look at these verses. And this is a sample. There are many, many verses like this in Scripture, brethren, sisters, young people, as you might well know. Look, Luke chapter 6. If you do good to them which do good to you, what thank have ye? For sinners also even do the same. And if you lend to them of whom you hope to receive, what thank have ye? For sinners also lend to sinners to receive as much again. This is natural. This is not spiritual. This is just natural. This is common sense. But God says, the Apostle says, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 6, He which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully every man according as he purposeth in his heart. So let him give. Not grudgingly, not of necessity, not expecting to gain. Because God loves a cheerful giver. God will bless generosity if it is honestly and genuinely given. Not as insurance in your, on your own life, but if it is honestly and genuinely given, it will be blessed, as these verses tell us. And that's, you see, that's what the exhortation is to. It is sensible, it's smart anyway, in verse 2. But that ought not to be the motivation. Give to seven and to eight, as you're able, as much as you can, and that willingly. And now in verse 3, he gives two examples of the evil that might come upon the earth. He speaks about evil coming tomorrow in verse 2. And in verse 3, he gives a couple of examples of what sort of evil that might be. If the clouds be full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. If the tree fall toward the south or toward the north, 
In the place where the tree falleth, there shall it be. And the meaning is obvious, I suppose, isn't it? When black clouds begin to build up in the sky, rain's coming. And there's nothing you can do about it. There is nothing you can do about it. When the wind blows this way and that way, and the tree falls, it will fall. North, south, east or west. It will fall one way or other. And where it falls, it falls. And there is nothing you can do about it. Of course, you could move the tree after it had fallen. You could move the tree. But that's really not what the verse is saying. That's not the point. The point is, you didn't know it was going to fall. And when you found that it was falling, there was nothing you could do to stop it falling exactly where it wanted to fall. And where it falls, it falls. Where it rains, it rains. You're powerless. There are things happening in the cycle of life over which we have no control whatsoever. These are the uncertainties of life. We've got to expect them. We've got to deal with them when they come. But we can't be paralyzed by them. Look at verse 4. He that observes the wind shall not sow. He that regards the clouds shall not reap. If you wait for the perfect moment... To do anything, nothing will ever get done. If you wait for the perfect moment to sow your seed, you'll never ever sow any seed. What's more, today might be the best day there ever is. Who's bought a house? You've all bought a house. Probably the greatest investment you've ever made, buying a house. It's going to take you 20 years to pay it off if you're just going to buy a house tomorrow, most likely. It's a very serious decision, a decision which you take a lot of care over and make a lot of prayer over. But the housing market might be high today. So what are you going to do? Well, you're going to wait for the housing market to come down, aren't you? And you're going to wait. 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 And the housing market might never have come down. And you'll rue the day you didn't make the investment three months ago and buy that house that you thought was overpriced at the time, which now looks like a bargain. But let's say you see the house. Let's say you see a house, and the price is right, and the timing's right, everything works. But if you keep looking, you might find a better one. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? This, this is what life's like, and particularly with big decisions, these are tough decisions. And so you sit there and you ponder the vagaries of the real estate market and all the while you've got your family in some rented accommodation somewhere, perhaps in circumstances which are far from ideal, while you're trying to work out what's happening tomorrow. You see? Don't procrastinate. Make a sensible decision. You see what the lesson is here? Be cautious, but don't be overcautious. Make your decision prayerfully and then cast your bread. It's true in life, you know. It's true in life. It's true buying a house. It's also true in the truth. You know, we've talked recently about gospel proclamation. We could talk about when the best time would be to preach. We could talk about what the best evening would be to preach. We could talk about what the best way to be, would be to advertise or the best way it might, we might use to preach. And we could procrastinate on that and we could talk for days and weeks and months and do nothing that God is able to bless. You know what the clear instruction of Scripture is, brothers and sisters? 2 Timothy 4 verse 2, preach the word in season and out of season. 
Don't worry about the clouds. Don't worry about the rain. Do something. Just get preaching. Preaching, for example. But get preaching so that God has something to bless. Because you don't know what God can do. You just don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. The seed's got to be out there. The word's got to be out there. Activity has got to occur for God to be able to do anything. If we just sit on our hands and do nothing, then of course, there's nothing to bless. Look, verse 5. As thou knowest not, what is the way of the Spirit? Nor how the bones do grow in the womb of her that is with child. Even so, thou knowest not the works of God who maketh all. We just don't know how God works. We just don't know what God can do. The farmer, for example, he knows how to sow seed. But he really doesn't know how seed grows. Does he? All he does is the beginning. He, he, he puts the seed in the ground. He, he casts it upon the water. What happens after that is a miracle. He really can't explain it. All he can explain is the result. But just because he doesn't understand how seed grows doesn't mean he doesn't believe it will happen. He sows in faith and he trusts that God will provide. Psalm 139 verse 14. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, made in secret, curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. We really don't know how seed germinates, be it of living creatures or of plants. We really... We just don't understand the works of God. Perhaps you turn a page back. Look at chapter 8 and verse 17. Wise men have tried to work these things out for generations and centuries. Look, he says in Ecclesiastes 8 and verse 17. Then I beheld all the work of God that a man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. Because though a man labour to seek it out, yet he shall not find it. Yea, Father, he says, though a wise man think to know it, Yet shall he not be able to find it out. And the very simple things we, we, we see around us are miracles happening. We take them for granted, like a weed that grows in the garden. We take it for granted. We, we have no idea how that occurs, really. Just as we have no idea how God acts and just what God can do. But there's one thing. Even though the farmer doesn't know how seed grows, he does know one thing, and that's this, that every seed yields according to its kind. If he plants wheat, he's going to get wheat. How, how he gets wheat, he doesn't know, but he knows if he plants wheat, he gets wheat. If he plants corn, he gets corn. Galatians 6 verse 7. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he reap. You might not know how. But Galatians 6 and verse 7 says, It will happen according to its kind. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. We don't understand, brothers and sisters, young people. We just don't understand all the methods of God. But we do understand the results. And one of those results is, if you sow wheat, you get wheat. If you sow corn, you get corn. If you sow to the flesh, you reap of the flesh. So when you do so, as he says here, do it actively, of course, take opportunities, of course, but do it circumspectly. Verse 6. In the morning, he says, sow thy seed. 
in the evening withhold not thy hand, for thou knowest not whether it shall prosper either this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good. Despite the fact, you see, that there are uncertainties in life, the more opportunities you take, the more likely you are to have success. So whether it be in the ventures of life, or in the simple issues of generosity, be diligent, show a largeness of heart, have an enterprising disposition. That's the exhortation of this verse, because look what he says at the end of the verse. Thou knowest not. You don't know. Whatever it is you do, you don't know whether shall prosper either this or that, or whether they both shall be alike good. You never know. Maybe this will work. Maybe that'll work. Maybe they'll both work. You know, in verse 2, at the end of verse 2, he said, be generous because you don't know what evil might befall you. This is the contrast in verse 6. Be generous and enterprising because maybe everything will work, you see. He's taking the opposite point of view. But it's true, isn't it? It's absolutely true. This is, this is his exhortation. To initiative, initiative and to take opportunities and to be active and creative and positive. And even more than that, you know, Rotherham begins the translation of this verse where he says here, in the morning sow thy seed and in the evening withhold not thy hand. Rotherham says this, in the morning sow thy seed and until evening do not withhold thy hand. That is, sow your seed all day long. Day in, day out, every day. Morning and evening. In fact, when you come to verses 7 and 8, Morning and evening become symbols for youth and for old age. So what he's saying here is that you sow dawn to dusk, day in, day out, every day, all your life, from when you're young to when you're old. Which proves immediately, of course, that we're not really talking about farming. Because a farmer doesn't do that. He does not sow morning to evening, and he doesn't sow every day of his life. What we're talking about here is consistency, is diligent activity in whatever field we choose, but particularly in the truth. Be active. Listen to this. Hosea chapter 10 and verse 12. Hosea 10 verse 12. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Reap in mercy. Break up your fellow ground, for it is time to seek Yahweh till he come and rain righteousness upon you. You see, Hosea 10 verse 12. This is the principle you see of Ecclesiastes chapter 11. Be generous. Be active. Be enterprising. Take opportunities as they come. Do it in faith so that God might bless you. Because you never know. You just never know what tomorrow might bring. And with all that in mind, brothers, sisters and young people, he begins the next subsection here in verse 7. Rejoicing in life. Truly, he says in verse 7, Light is sweet, and a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun. Light stands here for all the goodness that we experience in natural life. I'll prove that. Job chapter 30, verse 26. This is what Job says in chapter 30 and verse 26. When I looked for good, evil came unto me. When I waited for light, there came darkness. You see, I looked for good, I got evil. I waited for light, I got darkness. So light means good. Light is all the goodness of life. It stands for natural life, and particularly young natural life. 
Of course, light in Scripture stands for the Word. Often in Scripture, light stands for the Word. Christ is the light of the world. God dwells in light unapproachable. But that's not the application here. I suppose you could make that a secondary application here. The primary application is to natural life, and particularly the youth of natural life. Because look at verse 8. If a man live many years and rejoice in them all, yet let him remember the days of darkness, as opposed to the days of light, you see? For they shall be many, all that comes is vanity. So light is a symbol of life. Darkness is a symbol of death. Psalm 143, verse 3. My enemy, he says, persecuted my soul. He has made me to dwell in darkness as those that have been long dead. Psalm 143, verse 3. Light is life. Darkness is death. That's why, by the way, Jesus used exactly the same uh, symbology in John chapter 9. He said in John 9 and verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, because the night cometh when no man can work. John 9 verse 4. You see, so light and day stand for life and death. And they, I'm emphasizing that, I suppose, because they are symbols which get used now throughout, the, bit more, well, throughout chapter 12 particularly of youth and old age of life and of death. But, he says in verse 9, darkness is coming. Things aren't always going to be as simple as they are now. So he says in verse 9, Rejoice, O young man, in thy youth, and let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy youth, and walk in in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. But know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. For all these things, God will bring thee into judgment. You know, youth is a time for gladness, for eagerness. While the world is still a place of wonder, youth is a time of vitality, and of initiative, and of creativity, and of finding things out that are new. But life will soon pass, and with it will, de- will come a decline in physical and in mental powers. And so he says here, look, let your heart cheer you, he says, in the days of your youth. That is... Be optimistic, be vital, as as all young people are. And walk in the ways of thine heart and in the sight of thine eyes. Enjoy yourself fully within, of course, the orbit of godliness. This this, uh, little phrase here, by the way, the the phrase to to walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of of your eyes cannot possibly be, in this verse, a license to do wickedness. Otherwise, what Solomon's saying in this verse is something like this. Go on, he says, enjoy yourself, immerse yourself in sin, and know you'll be condemned for it. Which would be very sarcastic, and and out of sorts entirely with the rest of Ecclesiastes. If you want to find out the spirit of interpretation of that, you come back a page to something like chapter 9, verse 7. Here's a very similar sort of verse. We're talking about walking as your heart takes you, as your eyes take you. We're implying that this is for a man of God or a woman of God. Here's the same sort of thing in verse 7, chapter 9. Go thy way, eat thy bread with joy, and drink thy wine with a merry heart. Now that can't mean eat and drink and get drunk, because he says, God now accepteth thy works. Whatever Whatever the the walking in the way, the eating bread, the drinking wine are speaking of here, it is acceptable to God. 
And the point is that, of course, it's not a mandate to sin. It's an encouragement to joy, enjoy the blessings of God in a legitimate way. Because God now accepteth thy works. And that's what he's talking about back over in chapter 11 and verse 9. Enjoy life and enjoy life to the full. God accepts you. And God expected that these blessings are given to us to enjoy, brothers and sisters. And so we should enjoy them in a legitimate way. And as Solomon concludes this little section on, on wisdom amidst uncertainty, he does so by explaining that of all the uncertain things that there are in life, there is one thing that is absolutely certain. Judgment to come in verse 9. Judgment is coming. You know, he makes the same point back in chapter 3. If you read Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 17, you'll find that he says that, that, in, that in that verse that God's going to judge the righteous and the wicked. There's a time for every purpose and for every work. You might recall we, we spoke on it at the time that, that we even know the time that's going to come upon us. We just don't know the times that tomorrow might bring. And that every one of us has different times and different seasons at different times of our lives. But we all face one time. We all face a time of birth, a time of death. We all face a time of judgment. That's what he makes the point about in chapter 3. Well, it's the same here. And you look at how, how graphically he makes this point here. Look at verse 2. Give a portion to seven and also to eight, for thou knowest not what evil is going to come. Verse 5. As thou knowest not what's the way of the spirit, nor how the bones grow in the womb of her that's with child, even so thou knowest not the works of God. Verse 6. In the morning sow thy seed, in the evening withhold not thy hand, for thou knowest not whether you'll prosper or not. And then in verse 9, rejoice, walk in the ways of your heart and the sight of your eyes, and know thou that for all these things God will bring thee into judgment. You see, there's a, of the multitude of things that you don't know, understand this. Judgment's coming. Judgment's coming. Act accordingly. Verse 10. Therefore, he says, remove sorrow from thy heart, put away evil from thy flesh, for childhood and youth are vanity. Remove sorrow, verse 10, by rejoicing, verse 9. Put away evil, verse 10, because judgment's coming, verse 9. Don't be overly caught up in the exuberance of youth, verse 10, because childhood and youth are vanity. And in fact, there is a link with verse 9 there, because the word childhood in verse 10 is the same word youth in the second line of verse 9. It's the same, identical word in the Hebrew. And the word youth in verse 10 is in fact the same word youth in the fourth line of verse 9. They are two different words. Childhood and youth are two different words. They mean childhood and, and teenagehood, if you like. But rejoice, verse 9 says, Rejoice, O young man, in thy childhood. Let thy heart cheer thee in the days of thy teenage years. But childhood and teenage years are vanity. The carefree years of youth are good and healthy, and right in their place. But they aren't the end of the story. There is a serious side to life. Judgment is coming. And that's now how he begins chapter 12. Remember. 
When you're young, when you're old, remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. It's the word for teenage years, by the way, the last word for youth in verse 10. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth, while the evil days come not, nor the years draw nigh, when thou shalt say, I have no pleasure in them. That's the point, you see. Despite the vitality of youth, despite the fact that youth might think nothing's ever going to go wrong, life doesn't just go on forever. It it just doesn't stay the same as it is at youth. And the time will come when it is more difficult to rejoice, as verse 9 exhorts us to. When life doesn't hold all the pleasure that it once used to hold. And whilst the threat of judgment, perhaps in a negative sense, might be an incentive to live godly, Solomon now recognises that something positive must replace it. The, the, the negative influence of judgment isn't alone, really isn't enough. He says, no, no, remember your creator. Be active, be, be, be devoted to remembering your creator when you're young. Rejoice in the hope of salvation. Let your heart cheer you in the blessings of God. Walk in the ways of truth. It's good for a man to bear the yoke in his youth, Lamentation says. Do that when you're young. While, verse 2, the sun, or the light, or the moon, or the stars be not darkened, nor the clouds return after the rain. We've got the analogy of light and dark again, don't we? In verse 1, he talks about youth. Verse 7 here of chapter 12, he talks about death. Verses 2 to 6, he he talks about the decline of old age. From when a person is born all the way through to when they fall into the grave in in verse 7 of chapter 12 in darkness and in corruption. And the darkening of the sky, you see, that's spoken about here in verse 2, it's obviously speaking of a storm coming, but it's symbolic here for the demise associated with old age. What you have described in these verses is really quite a remarkable picture. Verse 2, old age is described by the darkening of the sky. Verses 3, 4, 5, 6, old age is described by the decline of a great house. A great homestead described in verses 3 to 6 here is a description of old age. Here's the picture. There's a house. A grand, sprawling house. Rooms upstairs, rooms downstairs. A great staircase winding up the outside of the house. Servants coming and going. Men bearing burdens left and right, bringing in the victuals of the house, all the possessions, all the provisions that the house needs to survive. Women grinding corn in the kitchen, running back and forth to the well for water. Servants available to guard the estate from the dangers that there might be without. Eager faces at the windows, bright, shining eyes, looking out to receive guests. The entranceway of the house, bathed in light of the great lamp that sits there as people arrive. There's music. There's great feasting. There's animated discussion late into the evening. But there comes a day, you see, when the family all grows up and the family leaves home where there isn't any more work for the servants to do. When the master of the house retires and perhaps a few faithful and loyal servants stay behind with him in his old age to look after him and to look after the house as best they're able to, the old homestead begins to decline. It tells us in Ecclesiastes 2 and verse 4 that Solomon actually made great houses. He builded houses, he planted vineyards, it tells us. It may be that the house that he's describing here is one of the very houses that he built himself early on in his reign. 
And that over a reign of 30 or 40, or 40 years it was that Solomon reigned, but over perhaps 30 years from when he might have concluded one of these houses, he might have seen one of his own houses decline in that time as perhaps the, the master of the house himself died. And so you read in verse 3, the day when the keepers of the house shall tremble, that is the guards, the footmen, those who once maintained the security of the estate, they're old and frail now. They're there perhaps with the, the old master of the house. Or they're trembling. And the strong men shall bow themselves. These are the butlers, the burden bearers now hunched over. The men that once carried in great sacks of corn to the kitchen of the house don't do it anymore. And the grinders shall cease because they're few. The women in the kitchen turning one stone upon another, grinding corn for the house. No more work for them, you see, because the house has got very few people. And those that looked out of the windows be darkened. There's nobody there. The family's gone, you see. No more bright expectant faces, young faces at the window of the house. Verse 4, the doors shall be shut in the streets. The entranceway now, dark, quiet. Nobody comes to visit the house anymore. The sound of grinding is low. The old man's still alive. Some grinding still has to occur in the kitchen, but nothing like before. The kitchens are dark. The kitchens are dusty. And he says, he shall rise up. The old man shall rise up at the voice of the bird. Rouses himself early as he's accustomed to do, as he's always done. And the daughters of music shall be brought low. The birds now make more noise than the house. The house is silent. There is no music played anymore in the house. It's a very quiet, a very cold, a very still house. Also verse 5. When they should be afraid of that which is high, the old man doesn't go to the upper rooms anymore. He's worried about climbing the staircase now. Fear shall be in the way. Doesn't go outside anymore. Doesn't go to town anymore. He's worried. The almond tree shall flourish. Planted when the house was young, perhaps. When the children were there, these trees were just settling. Now these trees are great mature trees, uh, branching out all across the lawns of the estate of the house. Many, the garden's full of old trees, I suppose, in this great estate. The grasshopper shall be a burden. The word, uh, well, the, 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 the RSV here actually says, the grasshopper shall drag himself along. What happens, of course, is that the day cools down. Verse 2 has told us that the clouds are coming. And the grasshopper slows himself down in the cold. Himself slows down in the cold. And it says here that desire shall fail. The word desire here is the word caperberry, used to flavour food. So not only have we got great trees in the estate of this house, but even the trees and perhaps the vegetable garden, or whatever the equivalent might have been, they're fallen to rack and ruin. They're not used anymore. There's no flavour needed in the food. The cook's are few and scarce. The food is scarcely prepared. And he says here, because the man goes to his long home and the mourners go about in the streets. The old house, shut up, cold and dark, preparing now to host its last and most final gathering, the funeral of the old man, the funeral of the master. He's going to leave one house for another. Verse 3 tells us, talk, starts talking about this great house. Verse 5, verse 6 rather, tells us that he's going to, verse 5, sorry, tells us that he's going to his long home. So one house now is going to be traded for another in the life of this old man. Verse 6, he says, or 
either the silver cord be loosed or the golden bowl be broken. The silver cord and the golden bowl relate, it appears, to a, to a golden ornamental lamp which used to hang by a silver cord in most eastern houses. Very, very common to find these ornamental lamps. The, the bowl here is actually a lamp. The, the bowl is the part that holds the oil. This is an ornamental lamp which hung by, a, by an ornate cord in most eastern houses. You see, in 1 Kings 11 and verse 36, Rehoboam was told that he'd be given the tribe of Judah so that David would always have a lamp in Jerusalem. And the lamp, therefore, symbolized the life of the house. And in history, Middle Eastern houses have an ornamental lamp, a lamp which they don't rely on for the normal lighting of the house. But that symbolizes the life of the house. And the lamp never goes out. So the house is always alive. It's, a, I suppose, an omen of good for the family, for the prosperity of the family. But this lamp is broken. The silver cord is loose. That means it snaps. It breaks. And the lamp comes crashing to the floor. It is broken, you see. The light goes out in the house in a very real sense, a very symbolic sense. And he says, or else the pitcher is broken at the fountain. The pitcher, of course, is the earthenware jug. The jug used to collect water from the well. And one day, by accident, the jug's dropped on the flagstones and no more can they collect water from the well in that jug. Or even worse, the wheel is broken at the cistern. The very source of the well water is cast off. The cistern here, of course, is the well itself, the cavity of the well. And the wheel is the wheel that you'd, you'd put the rope over to lower the jug down into the well, and the wheel's broken and collapses into the cavity of the well. So now the well is entirely useless. Everything is falling down around the edge of the house. Nothing works anymore. Speaking, of course, of the decline of the man himself. Not only the house, but even the basic machinery that keeps the house running is crumbling into disrepair. And this once great homestead, this once ornate and glorious homestead, falling down, ready to perish. Verse 7. Then... Shall the dust return to the earth as it was, and the spirit shall return unto God who gave it. But it does, a house doesn't have the spirit of God. So that as we read these words, instantly we know we're not really talking about a house at all. You see, we began with the light in, in chapter 11 and verse 7. Light is sweet, a pleasant thing it is for the eyes to behold the sun. Chapter 12, verse 2, the clouds... The clouds begin to cloud over and the light becomes dim. The sky becomes dark. The windows in verse 3 of chapter 12 are now dark as old age takes over the house. And then in verse 6, the, the very lamp itself, the light actually goes out in the house as the lamp is destroyed, as it drops from the ceiling. This whole section is not really a story about a house. It's really a story about a man. The old man who lived in the house, and the house does duty for the man. You see, when we read about the sun being dark, and we're talking about the twilight years of life, this is an exhortation to remember God in your youth before the clouds come. The clouds return. It rains, the clouds blow away. Immediately they come back, and ailments return in age, of course, don't they? The keepers tremble. Once powerful arms, now shaking hands. The strong men bow themselves as the legs do. The grinders cease as teeth fall out. The windows are darkened as sight fails. The doors are shut as speaking declines. The sound of the grinding is low. 
because the appetite's really not there as it once was. The old man rises up with the birds because he can't sleep properly anymore. His sleep's broken, his sleep's short. It's a difficult night every night. The daughters of music are low. He can't hear the music to sing properly. And if he could, he can't really sing like he might once have have done. He's afraid of heights, so he doesn't climb the stairs. Fears are in the way. He's defenseless. He doesn't like to go amongst big crowds. It's, It's difficult for him. The almond tree flourishes in a crop of white hair. The grasshopper's a burden, speaking of his lack of energy. In fact, as the RSV said, the grasshopper drags itself along. A pitiful picture, really, of inability to be vital as he once was. Desire shall fail as it does with ambition. There are mourners in the streets expect that death is expected, of course. These are the professional mourners now just waiting, just wait, I suppose almost like a breakdown truck waits for an accident. They are waiting for the next job. The silver cord is loosed and the golden bowl is broken. The pitcher broken at the fountain and the wheel broken at the system, all speaking of serious problems, immediate complications which cause death. We're really talking about an old man. The house does duty for the man, but this is, of course, the darkening years of age and the decline of the old man. And life, you see, is very, very short. A sobering verse, verse 70 says, Then the dust shall return to the earth as it was. The spirit shall return to God who gave it. So remember your creator in the days of your youth. Because life is so fragile, so, so fragile, It's a gift. Life is a gift. And what is a gift for but to remember the giver of the gift? Without that, well, life's nothing more than a breath, really. Vanity of vanities, he says. All, all is vanity. And then verse 9, he says, moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yea, he gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. Solomon, having found it all this, is now very keen to pass it on. He gave good heed, it tells us in verse 9 here. The word means he weighed up. He weighed things up. He worked out what they really meant. And it says he set in order many proverbs. Now look, here's a key point. This little word, set in order. You know, it's remarkable this this, uh, concludes in chapter 12 because this is the issue of the book. This little word, set in order. You come back with me to chapter 1. Here's the same word. Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 15. He set in order many proverbs. The word means he made them straight. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 15. That which is crooked cannot be made straight. That which is crooked cannot be set in order. And that which is wanting cannot be numbered. That's what he says in chapter 1 and verse 15. You come across to chapter 7, verse 13. Because he explains why things are like that. I've set in order Proverbs, he says. Because there are some things in life that can't be set in order. Chapter 7, verse 13. Consider the work of God. For who can make that straight? Who can set in order what God has made crooked? You see the point? The word only occurs three times in Ecclesiastes, in chapter 1, chapter 7, and chapter 12. You see the point? 
Solomon wrestled. He wrestled with the issues of life and he found he just could not straighten out any of the irregularities of life. These are the irregularities of creation. But because he couldn't straighten them out, he decided to straighten out how you could understand them. That's what he could do. He couldn't straighten out the problems of life, but he could straighten out how you should understand them. And that, of course, is the entire purpose of the book of Ecclesiastes. Come to grips with life. Understand it in its context. Understand it in its limitations. Appreciate them. Address them. Don't look for more in life than life is meant to offer. And hope for life to come. That's how you understand the wrinkles in life. That's how you address them. That's how you deal with them. And that's how they don't get on top of you. Verse 10. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words. And that which was written was upright. Even words of truth, acceptable words, as the margin says, words of delight, inspiring words, illuminating words. Whatever he wrote, he says here, he wrote the truth. He wrote the truth, but he wrote it down so that it would be in an attractive and in a memorable way. That's what he tried to do. Words that you could remember. Words that would form pictures in your mind that you could understand. He deliberately and conscientiously sought about doing that. Verse 11, the words of the wise are as goads and as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies which are given from one shepherd. The goads here, of course, are the cattle prods. Long, long-handled sticks with a sharp point on them that the plowman used to use to prod animal, to direct animal, uh, animals. It's the same Not the same word, of course, in the Hebrew, but it's the same idea as we find in in Acts chapter 9 and verse 5 when the Lord told Saul that it was hard for him to kick against the pricks. In Paul's case, it was his conscience that was prodded by the words of Stephen. In this case, our conduct is prodded by the words of the wise. These words are goads to us. that impair us in the right course of life. And these words are like nails fastened by the masters of assemblies. Now the nails here, the, the, the word, well, nails possibly as good a word as any. It's, it's a hook. It means a hook. But, but not a regular hook that you might screw into a wall. These are hooks that were built into the wall of the house. What they used to do in ancient times when they wanted a, a very strong, a very secure hook in a house to, to hang things on, they would cut a tree, cut a sapling out of the ground, a, a living tree, and they'd tear it out with the roots and cut the trunk off and then embed the roots of the sapling in the wall of the house as they built the house. So the roots would, would, would combine with the plaster so that this would be a, a, a hook sticking out of the wall, which was absolutely permanent. I mean, you could swing on it. It was absolutely secure. And that's what's being spoken about here. These words are something you can rely upon. That's the point. That's the point of calling them a nail, a hook, something you can repo- something immensely strong that you can rely upon and support yourself from. And they're fastened by the masters of assemblies. Literally, it ought to be the masters of collected sayings. An assembly is a collection. But it reads here as though it's a collection of people. It's actually speaking about a collection of words or a collection of proverbs. And so what we're being told here in verse 11 is that the words of the wise are as goads The collected sayings of the masters are as firm as nails that you can depend on. That's what we're saying. The words of the wise, you see, are the collected sayings of the masters. And those words are like goads. 
the prod you or nails that support you. And they're all from one shepherd. And the shepherd, of course, is God. Psalm 23, Yahweh is my shepherd. Psalm 95, verse 7, where the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand, the shepherd is God. Verse 12, and further, by these, my son, be admonished of making many books, there is no end, and much study is awareness of the flesh. The RSV here says, more correctly, and it is important, my son, be aware, beware of anything beyond these, that is the words of the wise, and of making many books, there is no end, and much study is awareness of the flesh. Beware of anything beyond this, he says. You've heard what I've said to you. Don't look for other interpretations. The books he refers to in verse 12 here, as we mentioned in an earlier study, it appears are books on the very subject of the book of Ecclesiastes, books on the philosophy of life, books that other cultures have written to try and fathom the very deep questions of life. And Solomon's point is, I've answered it. I've told you the correct answer. I've given you words of uprightness and truth. Don't look further for any answers. You will not find them. This verse, by the way, has been used, as you might be aware, to suggest that we shouldn't be too keen on Bible study. We shouldn't go overboard on Bible study because it's a weariness of the flesh. Well, clearly you can see a a wrong interpretation of the verse, but I'll offer you one quote to combat it. Proverbs 10, verse 21. Proverbs 10, verse 21. The lips of the righteous feed many, but fools die for want of wisdom. How can you say you shouldn't study your Bible too hard? Is there such a thing? So he turns to the conclusion in verse 13. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole man. You can eliminate the word duty. This is the whole man, the complete man, the satisfied man, the fulfilled man. This is the answer of the book of Ecclesiastes. This is how you get satisfaction in life. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Proverbs 1 and verse 7 says that the fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom. So the fear of God is where all the answers begin. And the keeping of the commandments, 1 John 5 verse 3 says, is the way we show our love for God. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. 1 John 5 verse 3. Jesus says it all also, I think, in John chapter 15 verse 14. Keeping the commandments is the only measure of your love or otherwise for God. Fear God. Keep his commandments. That's what we're created for, brothers and sisters, young people. That's what we're created for, and that's where we'll find the greatest satisfaction. Verse 14. For God shall bring every work into judgment, with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. And the chapter finishes, of course, in the very same way as chapter 11 finished. Jesus says in in Luke chapter 12 and verse 2, that there's nothing covered that shall not be revealed. Nothing hidden that shall not be made known. Luke 12 verse 2, God will bring every work into judgment. Paul in in 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 13, every work, he says, every work shall be made manifest because it shall be revealed by fire. It won't just be revealed by being poured out of under the rug. It will be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Anything that's of God, immortalized. Anything that's a vanity, destroyed. Burned up, consumed, utterly destroyed. As Peter said, you know, Peter, in 1 Peter 1 verse 24, 
All flesh is grass. All the glory of man is as the flower of grass. The grass withereth, the flower thereof falleth away. The word of Yahweh endures forever. What happens when the fire hits the grass? If all we are is made of grass, there's nothing left, is there? What we're looking for is gold, silver, and precious stones that fall out of the husk of this life and are immortalized in the next. That's really the issue. And you think, brothers and sisters and young people, of Solomon writing those words in verse 14. God shall bring every... Imagine the old man. God shall bring every work into judgment. A man who had lived a life of extraordinary works extraordinary works, many of which were absolutely evil and all of which will come into judgment. Imagine Solomon writing those words. But a man who at the end of his life had drawn all the conclusions we've just read. And so you're left with the obvious conclusion, the obvious question. What about Solomon? Where would Solomon stack up in the context of these chapters? Well, let's be blunt. Will Solomon be in the kingdom of God or won't he? It's a rested question. I'll tell you why it's a rested question. I'll give you four facts. First one is this. There's no biblical record at all that Solomon repented. All we have, remember, of, of Solomon's life, outside of perhaps the Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, it's the Psalms. All we've got is what we see in the King's record, Chronicles record. No record at all in there that he repented. In fact, quite the opposite, because the King's record closes Solomon's life, speaking of his apostasy and his idolatry. The shrines that Solomon built in his day were not, as we found last class, not destroyed until Josiah's day, which perhaps would lend weight to the suggestion that he served those shrines until he died. Secondly, when Solomon was told that he was going to forfeit his kingdom, what did he do? He sought to kill Jeroboam. And Jeroboam fled to Egypt for how long? Until Solomon's death. Perhaps providing further evidence of Solomon's unrepentance. Point three. God raised up enemies against Solomon. Hadad the Edomite, Rezin, king of Syria, Conspicuous enemies against Solomon. And in 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 25, it, said, it says that Rezin, the king of Syria, was an adversary to Israel all the days of Solomon. So there you have it again. And finally, there is no Jewish tradition whatsoever, whatsoever that suggests any form of repentance in Solomon's life. And it's argued that that's a very strong point given the Jewish penchant for honouring their famous biblical ancestors. So there's nothing, brothers and sisters. And if all we had on the life of Solomon was the historical king's record, I really feel that that would be the end of the matter. You, you, you really have to pull something out of the bag to convince me that I should look any further. The fact is we do have one other piece of evidence, and it's right here in front of us in the book of Ecclesiastes. Because contained in this book, I believe, is a remarkable conclusion. An absolutely remarkable conclusion. Not just the conclusion or the, uh, to the burning questions of life, but also to the burning question of Solomon's life. You come with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. 
was interesting, you know, because a brother, about a month ago, when we first started this series, a brother came to me and said, have you looked at Deuteronomy chapter 17? I said, yeah, I have, but I don't want to talk about it just yet. Well, I wonder if that brother knows all there is in Deuteronomy chapter 17. Verse 15 of Deuteronomy 17. Here is the prohibitions of the king. All kings had to undergo these prohibitions. Verse, well, verse 14, let's start one verse back. When thou art come into the land which Yahweh thy God gives thee and shall possess it, and shall dwell therein and say, I'll set a king over me like as the nations that are about me, thou shalt in any wise set him a king over thee whom Yahweh thy God shall choose. So you'll choose a king that God appoints you. Thou shalt set a king over thee. He'll be from among thy brethren. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee which is not thy brother. And when he is king, he will not multiply to himself horses, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he shall multiply horses. For as much as Yahweh said to you, you shall not henceforth return that way. Don't multiply weapons. Horses are used for war, of course. You're not allowed to multiply weapons if you're a king. Secondly, neither shall he multiply wives to himself that his heart turn not away. Point two, don't multiply women. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. Point three, don't multiply wealth. And it shall be when he sits upon the throne of his kingdom that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book out of that which is before the priests and the Levites. Did Solomon know all this? Of course he did. He wrote it down, just as the verse says. He was the son of David. And David crowned him. David was alive when Solomon began as a king, there was no doubt in my mind that David would have insisted that his boy wrote out the law and di directly and personally knew these prohibitions that all kings subsequently were going to have to obey. Well, here they are. These are the royal prohibitions as they applied to great King Solomon. Don't multiply horses. Second Chronicles 9, they brought unto Solomon horses out of Egypt. And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for chariots and 12,000 horsemen whom he bestowed in the chariot cities. Broke it in a magnificent style. Don't multiply women. But King Solomon loved many strange women. He had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. First Kings 11. Broke it. In magnificent style. Don't multiply wealth. And the king made silver and gold at Jerusalem as plenteous as the stones. And they brought silver and gold at a rate year by year. And as we observe one of the class, 666 talents came to him year by year. A significant number in this context. You, you can see these three great prohibitions of all kings were broken in in a magnificent style by Solomon, the king of Israel, the son of David. Did he know them? Of course he knew them. He had written them out line by line, as we've described. Well, the obvious question, of course, is why? Why did Solomon do this? How, how could you do something like this? You, you, could, you could hardly claim that you're ignorant. With the conclusion we've found in the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon could hardly claim that he didn't believe in God. Why ever did he do this Especially, especially when God's blessed you with more wisdom than any living person on earth. 
Not I think the answer to that question is Solomon was on a quest. He knew what he was doing. He knew the commandments. He knew this. He knew those verses against those principles, those prohibitions. But the quest was all important, you see. This quest was going to benefit disciples for generations to come. And that in a funny way, because he was on a work of God, in a funny way, I think he felt he was above the prohibitions of Deuteronomy chapter 17. It's not an excuse, of course, but I think it's the reason that Solomon did this. And because he sinned so badly and so wickedly and so consciously, he actually lost control of the quest. The quest began to consume Solomon. Almost killed him. Almost destroyed King Solomon. And so we come back to our question. Will he be in the kingdom of God? What was Solomon's mind when he died? What were the last thoughts upon Solomon's mind? And here's the book of Ecclesiastes. Don't multiply weapons. I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. He collected horses. He admits it in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. But I've thought about it. There was a little city. There came a great king against it. There was found in that little city a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Then said, I, ah, wisdom's better than strength. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, and therefore I conclude... Wisdom strengtheneth the wise more than ten mighty men which are in a city. Isn't that Solomon saying, I was wrong to collect weapons? Wouldn't you say? He collected women. I provided for myself male and female singers and the pleasures of men, many concubines, against the law. And I thought about it. And I decided that I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart has snares and nets and her hands as bands. One man of a thousand have I found, but a woman among all those have I not found. And these were the women that he rued the day he collected. And he concludes in chapter 9, verse 9, Live joyfully with the wife whom thou lovest. Notice this. One woman, not a thousand. Live with the wife who you love. He says, all the days of the life of thy vanity, which God's given thee under the sun, for that is thy portion in this life and in thy labor which thou takest under the sun. There's the conclusion. Isn't that Solomon saying, I shouldn't have taken all those wives? he collected wealth in absolute abundance I gathered silver and gold the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces now we've read this in the king's record we're reading it in the book of Ecclesiastes this is what he did this is what he considered about that he that loves silver won't be satisfied with silver I've found it myself I know it myself nor he that loves abundance with increase this is vanity he says when goods increase they're increased to eat them my household got larger and larger. I couldn't control things. What good is there to the owners thereof? Saving the beholding of them with their eyes. And so I conclude. 
Wisdom is a defence. Money's a defence. But the excellency of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to them that have it. Money, wisdom is better than money. Money is just not that good. Isn't that really Solomon's saying? I shouldn't have got so rich. I shouldn't have done what I've done. I shouldn't have taken the weapons or the women or the wealth. I should not have done those things. Can you see what he's saying? What we've got here in the book of Ecclesiastes is the confession of Solomon. This is the confession of Solomon that is absent from the king's record. This is a confession which is reserved for the book of Ecclesiastes. I was wrong in multiplying weapons. I was wrong in multiplying other wives. I was wrong in multiplying wealth. The very things that are condemned by God in Deuteronomy chapter 17 are also condemned by Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. You might say to me, well, that's interesting. That's interesting, but is it convincing? Is that what Solomon really meant when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? Well, you think back. How did Solomon conclude Ecclesiastes chapter 12? Fear God. Keep his commandments. For this is the whole man. Why did he write that? Deuteronomy 17. Verse 19. And it shall be with him. And he shall read therein all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God, to keep all the words of this law and these statutes to do them. Why did Solomon conclude Ecclesiastes and Ecclesiastes chapter 12 by saying, fear God and keep his commandments? Because that's what he never did in his life. And that's the endorsement you see, brothers and sisters, that he makes of Deuteronomy chapter 17. I was a king. I broke all the rules. I shouldn't have broken them at all. And I've finally, at the end of my life, concluded that very thing. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Just like he said. Isn't that why he wrote it? Isn't that what he really meant when he wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? That's how he finished it. That is exactly what Deuteronomy chapter 17 says. The conclusion of Ecclesiastes, you see, is an endorsement of the very principles of the king in Deuteronomy. It was written by a king who broke every prohibition and repented of it. That's the conclusion of life, brothers and sisters. That's the conclusion of the book of Ecclesiastes. That's the conclusion of Solomon. And we pray that it might be our conclusion also.